Let off some steam, Bennett. I'd like to take his his face. Hello and welcome to the Fundamentals of Action Film 101 podcast. I'm Sarah Curlin. My friend and podcast partner, Christopher Carter, loved movies. He watched movies of all genres and analyzed every bit of them. Me, on the other hand, I only watched movies about crossword puzzles and board game competitions. Christopher would always talk about movies. I'd joke about the teen angst class I took in college. We'd make fun of the parts where the teens would drink one sip of Heineken, say they were drunk, and then pass out on the beach. I guess those conversations gave him the idea to approach me about doing a film-related podcast together. We'd always riff on something for hours over Zoom, so a podcast made total sense for us. We thought about doing a bad movie podcast, or commentaries on movies from the 40s and 50s. But what changed the game was when I saw F9 in the theater when it came out, and it was one of my very few forays into the action genre. I called it the greatest movie of all time, and he'd tell me to leave the room while he'd laugh and lose his mind. I thought F9 was so over the top and hilarious, and I made a lot, a lot of music jokes, mostly related to Ludacris, since he's in the movie, and my favorite song by Ludacris, How Low Can You Go? I guess not very low, because, spoiler, they went to space. He'd laugh and start to lecture me about the various tropes of action films and how I'm clearly missing the point. And voila! Podcast premise. Action Buff teaches an action beginner about action films. So Christopher set up a syllabus of films that he thought, in his opinion, would be important introductions into the world of action and adventure. We decided that we'd watch the film, and then Christopher would act as a professor type and teach a class about the film and discuss the tropes that could be spotted. At the end, he'd reveal the next film to watch, and the cycle would continue. He had at least 40 films planned for this season alone, and I know he had way more than that up his sleeve. Sadly, Christopher passed away in October of 2021. We were able to record four episodes before his passing, and I've decided to release them all at once into the world. I'm not going to continue the show past these episodes, since the whole thing was based on movies from his perspective, and it didn't feel right to me to steer away from that. However, he did recommend a movie to me in the final episode that we recorded together, so at some point, I will watch it and make an episode out of it. But I still need to figure out what that would look like without him. I want to be able to honor his memory and still make something that would make him laugh, or roll his eyes at me when I say something ridiculous. I wanted to release what we started. He lit up when he talked about movies. He was a true film nerd. I didn't want to keep the audio of his passion and his humor to myself. Also, I wanted an excuse to hear his voice again, and his laugh. I'll never forget it. It was always a goal of mine to make him laugh. When I first met him, he didn't say much. When he did, it was profound or serious. But when I made him laugh, I felt like I broke him. Like I broke that facade, that hard exterior. Like I won a prize. And at the risk of sounding ridiculously cheesy, being his friend was the prize. It was a gift. I didn't know him for nearly as long as most people in his life. But I feel grateful to have known him for a very small part of it. And to have this physical thing that he wanted to put out into the world. Not enough words can describe what a gift and honor that really is. To Christopher's family and friends, I hope, if you choose to listen, that it will bring joy to you. I'm excited for all of you to hear what we've created. I hope you like these episodes and watch the movies along with us. 
The first film on his syllabus was the 1988 Bruce Willis classic, Die Hard. And that's what we discuss in this episode. So if you haven't seen it or want to watch it again, pause this and go watch it. As of this recording, it's available to stream on Disney+, Plus, Amazon Prime, or with a Star subscription on Hulu. Without further ado, here's the first episode of the Fundamentals of Action Film 101 podcast. The name definitely doesn't roll off the tongue, but Christopher picked it, so I'm not changing it now. Thank you for joining me on this brief but fun ride into action. Come on into our first class where we'll be discussing Die Hard. Class is now in session. Everybody settle down, settle down, sit down at your desks. Make sure to turn your cell phones down. We're about to get ready for class. Okay, uh, so let us begin with today's class, the very first class of the semester. We are going to talk about a film that is widely considered number one on any list regarding action films. And that is Die Hard. This movie came out in 1988, directed by John McTiernan, starring Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman, Bonnie Bedelia, Alexander Godunov, and everybody's favorite father, Reginald Vell Johnson, who went on to be Mr. Carl Winslow in the Family Matters series. The budget for this film was 25 to $35 million dollars and had a box office of 139.8 to about 141.5 million. The breakdown of Die Hard, the rough discussion of what it is, it is a film where Bruce Willis is flying out to California to meet his wife that he's having a little problem with, but he is invited to where she works. I'm sorry, he's not invited. He comes there directly from the airport. and. It just so happens on that exact same day, 12 terrorists want to take over the building to get a thing, and we have our conflict. Uh, We have our reasoning for dying hard. So uh, I'm going to give you a quick idea of what I thought of the film, and I will then throw it to Sarah so that I can get her feeling on the film as well. So me personally, watching this film, I hadn't seen it in many, many years. I probably more than 10, 15 years. Uh, This film, they don't make films like this anymore. I I don't want to sound like that old fuddy-duddy. Your grandparents, uh, you know, they they always have that famous line. But they don't make films like this anymore. Uh, It's smarter than your average bear. There are little touches that make it, that make it tie together in a way that most films don't do now. They make you do the work. This one does the work for you throughout most of it. Long story short, I love this film. I enjoyed it very much, and I'm glad that I got to see it again with fresh eyes because it really still holds up. Would I make it number one on all these action film lists? That's to be determined, but I can see why it is number one for a lot of people because it checks a lot of boxes. Uh, and the action movie trope listing, big fan of it, big fan. Um, so Sarah, what are your thoughts on Die Hard? I think I was very entertained by this movie. I don't think it's like my favorite movie of all time. It definitely was a good opener into the exploration, I think, of the genre. I think I was still applying a lot of logic, which is something that I, that as you'll probably see throughout the course of this class, 
that I will tend to do, and I know that's all part of you have to defy logic in in the action world. I'm just like, how many lives does Bruce Willis have? <laughs> Understood. Understood. Um, I want to jump in with the logic really quickly because this is this is something that you're going to have to learn with action films. Uh, logic varies from film to film. Did you think that this film had too many moments where it was just fantastic nonsense, where it was just things happening you're like, there's no way this could have possibly happened in real life? Oh, fully. Like, a hundred times. All the explosions, all the times that I'm like, how is Bruce not dead? Fair. Fair. I, I will give you that. I understand, especially... I'm, I'm sure you're talking especially about the fire hose sequence off the top of the roof. Oh my god. That was one of the things for me where I was like, oh, you just happened to know there was a fire hose in here and you just happened to be like, I'm going to jump off of this roof and I'm just going to happen to survive and no big deal. Yeah, I get it. I get it. There was also the, the sequence where he was hanging by the gun in the elevator shaft and he made it. He did die, but uh, he managed to hang on with his... Uh, super strong police fingers and crawl up and get back into uh, an air van. Super strong police fingers. Should copyright that. (laughs) Going back to the point of logic, varying. Certain films will give you an idea of how serious you're supposed to take it by setting that it sets for you. We're going to compare and contrast this film with another film we both saw which is outside of coursework, which is Fast 9. So now... What a brilliant movie. Brilliant, brilliant. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to throw you out of this class if you keep talking, uh, saying that nonsense. Well, let's actually take the elevator sequence from Die Hard to a scene that was very early in F9. Spoilers for those who haven't seen F9. Uh, my fault, but I just have to make my point here. In the very beginning of Fast 9, there's a sequence where Ludacris, uh, Tyrese, and their female uh, companion are driving across a log bridge. And at some point, as they hit this log bridge going, what, 90 miles an hour? A three-ton machine driving across an old rickety bridge, which is just wide enough for their car, that the rope on the on their side of the mountain gets snapped and then the bridge just dips. So that signifies that there's no weight. There's no there's nothing holding that other side of the bridge up. They should immediately plummet to their deaths right then and there, but they don't. The movie tells you somehow that they're going to live by giving us this fake death thing and then they just come flying over the ridge on the other side. But can I ask if that for those who don't know, I haven't. I've only seen Fast Nine. I have not seen any of the other Fast and Furious saga or the or the spinoff movie. But is that is that established in the other films that you have to suspend your disbelief, or where they just keep getting into these close to death situations? Each film is different. They leaned more toward cartoonish, uh, or you know, suspending the disbelief more so with Fast Five going forward. The thing about Nine that I wanted to make a point of is that this movie made a key point to tell us that math and physics apply, especially with them going off to space later in the film. So if you're going to give me 
as a viewer, the idea that logic matters, that sequence in South, I think it was Central America or South America, that should never have happened. That to me made me lose my focus in that film and it took me out of it. Fast forward to Die Hard, where him hanging in the elevator shaft, the film did a very clever thing, I, I felt. It did more showing than telling. It showed you multiple times the gun hanging from the opening, and it showed you how the gun fit exactly in that opening on both sides, and it was long enough and sturdy enough to support his weight. Now, granted, technically something like that shouldn't work. Not everybody's going to be capable of, of hanging from a gun strap in an elevator shaft on Christmas Eve. I, I, know, I get that. But the fact that you give me the sense that this isn't just something that he was throwing out to chance. He actually set up the gun to hold his weight. It showed a level of problem solving and realism to a degree that allowed me to accept that stunt in my brain. And stuff like that happens throughout all action films. You'll, you'll definitely see through the, the rest of this class how this goes. But those tend to vary. Sometimes the logic is going to make sense. It's going to be steeped in like real-world physics, real-world uh, realistic sequences that you can believe are, can actually happen. And then there are situations where it's just like, okay, this is literally a human cartoon. I have to throw all my logic out the window and just accept that what I'm seeing within this universe is going to happen because it can happen within this film. Yeah, I think I did more throwing away of logic in Fast 9 than I did in Die Hard. It was more, I could believe it more in Die Hard about the, like, the hose and jumping off the building and the detonator going down the elevator shaft and him thinking that it's not going to blow back in his face. Right, right, right. That's, that's good. That, 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 that means Die Hard did the job in terms of explaining to you how the whole action sequences will go based off of what the rules are in that film. But I have an important question. Go ahead. Fire away. Have you tried the fist with the toes thing <laughs> after getting off a plane since seeing this movie? Um, no. I have. First of all, I have not been on a plane to try it. Two, I am not. There's an alarming lack of rugs in my life. <laughs> there's a lot of gotta get on it. A lot of wood floor, marble floor, just no rug. But I am willing to give it a shot uh, next time I go flying. Yeah, I'm ready. It sounded like it was doing wonders for, for the guy on the plane and Brucey. Well, I mean, technically, Bruce didn't even try until he got to Nakatomi Tower. So true. It was uh, but he had a rug. That's true. That's true. Was his wife had a rug, technically. It was her bathroom. True. Miss Gennaro had a rug. Big shot. She was a big shot. And you have a she had a off she had a bathroom in her office. Yeah, she was she was um I think she was second in command. Yeah. I wanna live that life. I want a bathroom in my office. I mean we all we all kinda of want a bathroom in our office, but um well technically we we don't need coworkers doing bumps of coke in our office when we Oh yeah. Just straight at the desk. Yeah. This or does it call it nose candy? Yes, that is what back then they loved to call it nose candy. Nose pixie sticks. Yes. That's how I consume my pixie sticks. Straight up the nose. So let me let me write that down for FBI transcription. So Thank you, thank you. Nose pixie sticks for Sarah. Got it. Thank you so much. So what did you like the most about Die Hard? 
I think I told you this in conversation, but Argyle was my favorite part of the movie. Argyle. <laughs> oh, man. Argyle. Yes, you, met, you mentioned Argyle now that I... Because I'm thinking you mentioned... We were thinking about the sweater because I hadn't seen the film in a while. I was like, I don't remember Argyle. Now seeing the film again, Argyle, he slipped out for a reason. There was no room for him in my brain. Why was Argyle your favorite part of this film? Argyle was like the comic relief. He was so funny, like he was so absurd. Like, how are you not hearing all this drama and you're just st- sitting in your car, talking on your limo phone, listening to s- the same Stevie Wonder song for hours? Because literally they only played one Stevie Wonder song the entire time that they flashed back to him. Listen, get Stevie the checks, but you would think he would be done with the one Stevie song or maybe move to other songs in the Stevie catalog. But he said, no, 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 no. This is it. And I just respected it. Understood. Understood. Ar- I thought Argyle was a bit much because Argyle, he was there to be the, how do I say this gently? He wasn't there to be the comic relief. He was there to just move the story along, especially he, when he was pressing Mr. McLean about his marriage and his love life. Right. The exposition, he definitely helped give you that in the beginning. But I just meant every time they cut back to him and he's just like on the phone and like talking to women in the limo. He was meant to be the Mr. Oblivious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just like the breaks into that from this, the strong amounts of blood and guns that there was a break, there was a, a respite in, in Argyle. Understood. I, I agree. I, I, think, I think that was one of the things that actually made the film better than I remember is because they were able to tie in all of these other scenarios within this one scenario. Because a, a lot of my memory was this film was just, it just took place in one location and that, that that's all it was. But I didn't, I didn't see the subplots of the news station, the police on the outside, Argyle in the, in the, you know, parking garage, all of that tied in, in, in a, in a nice, neat bow. And I, I, I appreciated that part of the film. You needed some sort of break and you needed some sort of cut to another, like stuff, the stuff with the police. Powell talking on the walkie to John McLean. McLean, yeah. Yes. I almost said McCain. And the stuff with the, like, really obnoxious police chief guy that's in every 80s movie. Yes. Yes. I wrote in my notes, oh my god, Breakfast Club, man. Yes, that is the same guy. Yes, it is. I was like, every every mean 80s principal (laughs) is this man. Or everybody you got it who's, like, suspicious of everybody. And I was like, yep. I I see you. You had a role that you played in the eighties, and you did it well. I mean that that really shows the the typecasting that went on back in the days. So guys like him have to play guys like that all the time. And he looks the part. That is, he he plays his role very well. That's why he was able to maintain a career. That's why those guys they're not going to make thirty forty million per picture, but they're going to make a nice clean one point five to maybe two point five. And then just work all the time. Yeah, character actors, they, they're, the, they're like not famous, but you know who they are and they make money. That's like the dream in acting. You just keep working and you're not like getting stopped by paparazzi. He's that guy you look at and say, like, oh, I know that guy. And that's it. You may not know his name, but you, you may know a character he's played. But I will tell you that uh, Family Matters Man was also my, my other favorite. Oh, yeah. He, uh, I, I don't want to call him Carl Winslow because that's all I remember him as, but he did, he did a much better job than I remember in this film. Like, he, he showed some range. 
his his gave you drama, gave you comedy. Yeah, his backstory about you know he, he shot a kid, he looked like a ray gun, like he you know that type of exposition. Just that little short bit, he got to you know flash the chops a little bit. Yeah, and that then the scene where he, where he he shoots the bad guy at the end, and then you saw that the tie in to the you're like, oh, he did it. He can hold the gun again. I wasn't even worried about that until he once he shot. I was like, oh, okay, I get it. It made me think of it after he shot it. I didn't think he could do it prior to. I didn't think he couldn't either. I, I mean, obviously, it was just not something he wanted to do. Right, right. But you know. It's all about that whole way that we portray cops in film of there has to be redeeming quality and humanity, you know, so we can root for them. And so it's just it's interesting to watch this kind this movie from a 2021 where we're at perspective too. Yeah. And then watching movies and seeing like how they talk about power hungry FBI people and and LAPD and everybody's just wrong. And then one goes rogue and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that they're always proving, uh, what I'm noticing, the trope is like, someone's got to be a rebel and prove people You're wrong. talking about from the police side. Yeah. Or like someone's got to challenge the status quo or whatever. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Sometimes to great success and sometimes to great failure. The funny thing about those police officers, especially the FBI, when they showed up, watching it with a 2021 brain... It's, it's almost like it's a joke. It's almost like meta now because those particular tropes of the police, like where Hans knew that when the FBI came that they would overdo it, that's sort of a thing that you've watched over time and say, okay, yeah, the FBI tends to do that whenever they come into an action film. But for a film back in 88 to know that to be the case, they've been running the same playbook for that long. But to me, I, I'm not saying that Die Hard was like the very beginning of action films, but it's it's in the early I say the first decade or so of action. So therefore for that to be like a running trope already, I thought that was pretty amusing. Probably somewhat revolutionary for the time. It had to establish from somewhere. True. True. Because I mean a, a lot of those films in the eighties, uh, when it comes to action it's usually a lot of I don't want to say police procedurals, but there's usually a a police force involved where detective does rogue thing his boss or her boss tells them, stand down, you can't do that. They then do it, succeed, and the boss just has to sit on it. Like, he just has to, you know, bite his tongue and just accept it. Right. The Chris Maloney of SVU, if you will. Pretty much. So what was the thing that you liked the least about Die Hard? The stuff that didn't age well. Some examples of what didn't age well? I guess it is still relevant. There's the scene with the newscaster when he goes to the McLean's house to try to talk to the kids, and then he threatens to like call immigration, and then they kind of gloss over it. But it felt like that sort of threat is relevant. Seeing that on screen was like, ooh, I am very, very uncomfortable. Understood. <laughs> they made the black man talk about basketball. Things like that where I'm like, okay, interesting. Having like a topless woman just in the beginning. For what reason? Or just like photos of naked women on Yeah, the, the, maintenance, the maintenance area. Yeah. Is that a thing that we, we need? Yeah, those were some of the things where I was like, ooh, this seems a little much. Or also, yeah, and the cop stuff was the, the like talking about shooting a kid. It feels very relevant. It doesn't seem like people feel sympathy for shooting someone now from a cop standpoint. Yeah. And so this was trying to give this person humanity. Well, that was that was something we did back in the days where 
I guess we could we could mark that up under tropes where the police were they were either on one or two sides. Either they were the crooks due to the fact that there was somebody who's dirty on the force that you had to, that had to be neutralized, or you had cops with a heart of gold who you know would risk life and limb to save you know uh, somebody's their own wives, somebody's kid. Uh, that's my friend so and so. Like they're gonna go jump through burning buildings or jump off burning buildings to make the save. Like that's that's an action trope. We kind of sort of have to dig there more so for, for the tropes because the basketball thing is a trope. Not necessarily asking black people to talk about basketball, but it's just more of stereotypes. They, they get hit pretty often. The idea that Japanese people are there with cutting edge technology. Another trope are usually the bad guys are the flavor of the month. Whatever that you might have beef with or may be seen in a roughly negative light in America, or maybe even throughout the world. I.e. Germans, yep. Germans at, Germans in the 80s were, wasn't it, that was close to, when did the Berlin Wall come down? No, oh, now you're trying to, now it's a history quiz. It is, it is. We've got to access a lot of different topics. Early 90s, I thought? Yeah, so Germans were still considered bad guys around that time. Now I'm looking it up because I don't want to say incorrect historical thing. 89. And this movie came out in 88. You've got the, the Germans, or uh, let's just say Eastern Europeans. They get they got a bad rap. They're going to be the bad guys. Uh, any old film involving maybe the Vietnam War, Charlie's the bad guy. Unless it's not Ameri- the Americans who were deep underneath who had their own little agendas. You roll that forward after you, after 9-11, the Iraqi, Middle Eastern, anybody in that ilk, you, they got it. I'd say more so nowadays is Russians, still a little bit of, still a little more Middle Eastern, but usually the bad guy of that time frame is going to be the main baddie going forward. That's that's a very big action trope regarding films like these. It would be called out more in film now. Mm, in a sense, but I, they're not getting called out. They're they just adapted over time. It's not. It doesn't stick out like this does back in the eighties. Because it's a, a different time frame. Like, something that happens in the 80s now is going to look odd to us. It doesn't jive for what's going on right now. Like, to, to go back to Fast 9, the bad guy of Fast 9 was... I don't even think you really knew who the bad guy was, to be honest. Well, because like, you're like, well, Charlize was bad, right? Yeah, yes. A couple of bad white guys. Basically, and yeah. John Cena. Right. <laughs> that's, my, that's a movie I'll go see. White guys and two white guys, Charlize and John Cena. <laughs> it was it was a loose group of bad guys. Um, I guess the one villain, if you narrow it down, would probably be John Cena. But I mean, you're supposed to also have sympathy for him because he has this broken relationship with Vin Diesel. Yeah, most of the modern villainy when it comes to films like these, it's they've gotten lazy with creating villains. You see how Hans Gruber got flushed out in Die Hard, but you know, like he's classically educated. He knows he came in to steal a specific amount of money. He's fully prepared. Well, not fully, but he's he's mostly prepared to deal with everything that's come before him. He is an opposition that has no connection to Bruce Willis at all. A lot of the action films now, unfortunately, they do the thing with my brother, my my uncle, my father, my my sister, my twin. Instead of instead of taking the time to create 
a real credible threat like Hans, they decide to take the easy route and just tie in a family member or a former family member or a best bud who turned bad because it, it makes it simpler. It gives you more outs if you make sequels. But I think it also gives you more characters to, I guess, not sympathize with, but understand more in that sense. No? To me, I don't, I don't think so. Like, with the amount that they do it now, it, it's lost its luster. If they did it more so back in the 80s or once or twice in the 80s, I wouldn't mind as much. But they do it so much more now than back then. I'm numb to it now. So seeing a guy like Hans Gruber get fleshed out and and explained to such a degree, like I'm actually excited to see like a true villain, you know, like a lead guy that actually has henchmen that he tells, you know, go do this, go do that. And his henchmen weren't stupid. Like most of the time, you know, some henchmen are just, that's another action movie trope, is stupid henchmen, but this one didn't have it. Where, you know, there's the guy who's sitting, who's, who's outside smoking, and he gets punched in the face and, you know, incapacitated easily. That didn't happen in this film. You had the black tech guy, which is, that, for that period, time, that time period, that was actually uh, progressive. You had the guy with the long hair who came back at the end. I can't remember all the rest of them like that. I know we had a couple under other henchmen. The guy, the guy in the... Um, There's the Al Pacino looking guy. Yeah. And then the guy who played the front desk guy. Oh, yeah. I actually thought... When I rewatched it, I thought that the front desk guy in the beginning was the that was like part of the act. Well, he he had to play cover when uh, Reginald Bell came down. When when Family Matters came in. Yeah, when uh Carl when, when Carl Winslow came by. Um, Where was Urkel though? That's my question. I feel like he would have been really good action star. I don't think this is his time. I don't think this is his time. I would have loved like the did I do that when he throws the the explosive down the elevator shaft. I would have hated every second of that. <laughs> I would have hated every second of that. Terrible idea. Terrible. I wanted to roll back into something you said about why you liked the film. Um, I wanted to mention the thing that I liked about Die Hard uh, most of all was how the movie showed and didn't tell. I liked how smart the movie was. Well, uh, let's just say let's just say clever. I won't say smart. Smart's a little too high on the list. Clever. Case in point, when McLean and Gruber met each other and you saw Gruber look down and see that McLean had no shoes on. Oh, the bloody toes. In the sequence after that where they were in that room with all the glass and he told this guy to shoot the glass, that showed a level of comprehension. Like, okay, this guy has no shoes on. Let's create a situation for him that's really unfortunate and get his feet all cut up with the glass to inconvenience him at the very least. Obviously, you're not going to die from cut feet, but, you know, since this guy is escaping you, the fact that you can inconvenience him or even get him to leave, leave a trail, that helps. There was a sequence where um, McLean was, he was pinned down, and all his only vantage point was seeing everybody's legs. Then you start shooting at the legs, that wipes everybody out. Most people take that for granted in terms of action sequences, like, oh, this is, like, if he's down, obviously he's supposed to shoot at legs. Not necessarily. He saw that opportunity to take the shot and tore that one guy's legs up. And then everybody else kind of like, okay, let's get out of here. He's, he's shooting people's legs. Let's, let's not make it an easy target to get our knees and ankles and shin bones ripped up by a shrapnel. Smart stuff like, smart little takes like that. Or even, even better, when McLean took out the first guy that he had to deal with, uh, the guy who came up to the, to that, 32nd or 33rd floor and said, we're not going to hurt you. And then 
quickly took that corner and shot like 15 shots at, at nothing. When he defeated him, oh, I think that was what's his name's brother, the, the blonde-haired guy's brother. Yeah, German German Fabio. Right. <laughs> he took uh, that guy was actually a dancer, by the way. Fabio or the German guy? Fabio. We, we can get to Fabio, but yes, let's let's let me say let me let me finish my point. He took the guy's gun. He took two clips. That's all that was there. He took the C4 uh, and some charges. They showed you what he had and what he was going to be going forward with for the next little bit of the film because he, he didn't come in, you know, like a, a, a walking storage locker with like 15 guns on him. He was a guy who just had his, his revolver. He lost that. And then he had to take something from another guy and work with that for the next little bit of the film. That doesn't always happen in action films. They make it seem like guns just fall from the sky or they're just in every little, you know, drawer, somebody's closet. Guns don't just show up that easily. So for them to show us that he got these things, to, to know that these guns are not as plentiful as most action films make you believe, I liked that part of, of the film. Yeah, I liked that the like at the end with the Christmas wrap and the tape. Like, that was at least believable, that he took resources that he had and was like, I'm going to tape this gun to my back. Right, right. The delays in the shooting of each other, the laughing, in order to pull that off, you have to suspend your disbelief at it a bit. Like, the dramatic pauses before shooting someone. I'm just like, you could have shot him already. He could have been dead. That's an actual movie trope. That's, that's, That's another trope where things that make sense in terms of killing someone they they sort of drag it out. There's the, the, the monologue, the villainous monologue, let's say three-quarters of the way through or four-fifths. The, the main villain and the main hero have that face-off, and the villain has to say his piece about why he was greatly wronged or what he's going to do or how he's going to send him to hell or whatever the case may be. And the hero has to do this, the hero stall. Where you stall for time, you find you find a way to distract or you have the distraction is brought in. Like, you know, some random character comes flying in off screen with an explosion. Somebody starts, you know, you know, bad guys start dropping out of nowhere because there's a sniper in the roof. Because technically, McLean could have killed Hans Gruber right at the sequence when he found out who he was. But he ran away instead. I mean, technically his life was in danger either way, but still. Um, he could have easily just put one bullet in him and kept running. It, would, it wouldn't have taken him that much time. But, you know, that's... That's how you have to suspend some of your belief for the film to work. You have to sort of create situations where these two polar opposites connect and then disconnect. The quality of the movie will then show you how well it does that. In a film like Die Hard, it does it very well. In a film like F9, it, to me, it does not. Yeah, there's not really a connection between the the villain, so to speak, and, and the protagonist in Fast 9. Not really, no. Like, at least there's a dance between Hans and John that happens the whole film of Die Hard. Right. But they don't know each other. There's no connection. Like, Hans doesn't even find his wife until he gets, you know, shouted out by the news team. Right. And that, I think that's kind of the beauty of a film like Die Hard is where Hans has a plan and he has enough... He understands that there are going to be some inconveniences inside plan, but he couldn't factor in John McClane showing up. Like, oh no, he ruined the plan. And yeah, but like that's you, you're never going to expect a barefoot New York police officer in California in a Japanese building to be the wrench that messes up everything when you've got everything planned out. I mean, granted, I, I mean, I would have told Hans to bring a few more guys 
you know, when I when I first saw it, I was like, uh, Hans, you might not want to just show up with 13 guys to a building 30 stories tall, but, you know, who, who am I? Who am I to tell? You're no Hans. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm probably better. But, uh, oh, wow. High praise. Who, who am I to tell the terrorists who to bring and how many to bring? If he thought he, he must have cased the place and he understood that they were probably light, especially on a Christmas Eve. You know, it makes sense. They put out their ad in the paper and they could only get certain people because of the holiday. There's only two levels of, the, of security on the first floor. There's the guy at the elevator and there's the guy in the front desk. That was it. They had cameras, but, you know, I, the camera guy was the front desk guy. All in one place. They had to do a one-stop shop. I mean, that's that might be the limitations of the, the budget there. The production company didn't want to have to pay more people. They'd rather pay for more explosions. Uh, well, that was money well spent, in my opinion. Yeah, those are pretty intense. Yeah. For a film like this, I, I didn't remember them being that big, but yeah, very large. Also a trope, uh, explosions. Get used to them. Get used to seeing a lot of them throughout this course. This this was just the tip of the iceberg. This might this actually might be the lightest in terms of explosions, depending on the films. Explosions will definitely be the lightest. You say, wow. This 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 might be amongst the lightest. Yes. Damn. And also, this might be amongst the lightest in terms of body count. Fast Nine probably won in terms of body count, no? There were a lot of people done, yeah. You're right. And there's, a, and there's just a lot of extra residual damage for no reason. Materials getting smashed, people running for their lives. That that wasn't much of an issue in this film. But this is a controlled environment. Other than the, host- the 30 or so hostages, not too many people were really in danger, per se. Also, can I ask, is being blonde and being gay a California thing? Explain. That's a joke that they made a couple times in the movie. Uh, in the beginning, there's a blonde woman that jumps onto this man in the airport, and he's like, California man. And then he gets into the party, and a guy kisses him on the cheek to, like, say Merry Christmas. He's like, man, California, or whatever. It's so gay and blonde, California. Progressive. Potentially. I, there there were, some choices were made back in the 80s that, were, that are not made now. They might have been trying to say something about California as a New York guy. Uh, there's a bit of a culture shock. Sure. I thought that he was checking out the blonde for his own personal reasons. As I said in my notes, McLean's got wandering eyes. He had no issue looking at other women, even though he was headed back to his, well, he was trying to make things right with his wife. He actually made uh, double double contact with the naked woman in the, in the maintenance area. Yeah, you wouldn't have known that he was trying to get back with a wife. Now, that's an interesting thing for this film, is that they didn't sexualize her like they normally sexualize a lot of other protagonists, significant others. They didn't really put her in, like, revealing... Her blouse was, like, unbuttoned a little bit, but it wasn't... But that was later in the film. Like, she, yeah. wasn't showing, she wasn't showing Cleve until it was too late. And don't we all? <laughs> I mean, for, for us as the viewer, showing it was too late. But yeah, she, she wasn't sexualized that way. That, that was rare for an action film. The normal trope is there's something attractive about the person that he's trying to save, whether it just be a symmetrical face. Hmm. They, they make a point to make this woman or man look like something that everybody would want. I mean, the trope of the scantily clad lady, the objectified lady, it was definitely minimal in this movie overall. Well, well also, don't get used to that being the norm as well. That's That's... This is definitely, I can say with 100% assurance that this is the lightest it'll ever be. Like, you're, you're, you're going to see way more of that objectifying going forward. Oh, yeah. I, I expect nothing less. But also, I realize in Fast 9, 
a lot. I didn't really feel like when we're being objectified, which I was also surprised, or not as much. There was the sequence at that party when Helen Mirren drove. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Helen Mirren, a, a villain of all villains. We we love her. Yeah. She was also my. She was my favorite in Fast Nine. Understood. Um, but the, the flashback as well. With Fast Nine, they don't spend too much time with the objectification. You you get a little bit of sex appeal with the racing, uh, because res- racing and sex appeal sort of go together. But it's mostly it's mostly about family, as we all have heard a thousand times from Vin and friends. The main person who is I don't even say uh, sexualized, but she just she's not wearing like a a mechanics zip up suit, but Michelle Rodriguez is always wearing a, like a really super tight tank top, but it's but that's about it. There's no there's no zooming camera that goes from her knees up to her back and to her front. Minimal cleave in in Die Hard as well. Yeah, very. I mean, outside of the full on nudity, but there's yeah, yeah, that was brief. Yeah, very brief. I mean, that's our it's an R rated film. Oh, I was gonna ask. Yeah, what was it's an R rated movie? Yeah, it was. That's for the language. That's for I'm gonna fucking eat you and I'm gonna fucking cook you. My favorite line. In this movie, that was that was, that was called game. That seemed like something he would say, though. Right, but I was here for it. I was here for the cooking and eating. <laughs> now, now hearing it, I just realized how bad it was. He loves saying "motherfucker," obviously. Yeah, the yippee kaye is actually like a cultural touchstone. People love saying yippee kaye in future uh, projects. Little callback, if you will. Yeah, it, it it became one of those callbacks. Overall, it was an experience. I'm looking forward to furthering my education in action films. Yeah, I think this 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 was a a good start to start with what people consider the best. You can get a general idea of where this going this is going to go. It's going to go different directions, obviously. Um, it's going to go better. It's going to go worse, but at least you have a, a general template of how things will go and how they should go. Especially since you have the counterbalance of F9 versus this. Interesting pairing, but I but I enjoyed the comparison. Understood. Like I, I to me I thought F9 was atrocious. But I did get there were moments of the film that I could take enjoyment from. My my favorite thing to me was the world's longest zip line that uh, John Cena was on. <laughs> because it seemed like every single sequence he was on the same zip line at the same height level. Even though, even though they showed he stopped and fired like two extra uh, zip lines for himself, it just seemed like he was in the same spot. I could not stop laughing at that. The the scene where John Cena was in jail and well, not jail, but he was in captivity from the Vin Diesel in the group. Diesel hugged Han, and you could just see like they then panned to Cena's face seeing that. For some reason, I, I, I laughed out loud about that. I thought that was hilarious to me. Did you see it in a theater? Yes, I did. I did. Were you the only one laughing? Because that would have been funny. Yes. We were the only ones that made noise, actually. In that scene or just overall? That particular scene. We were the only ones making noise because we thought it was so stupid. Listen, I like squealed when Luda and Tyrese were in space. I didn't make any noise, to be honest. Because, I mean, it had been spoiled for me. So I kind of knew it was coming. but My fault? No, no, no. I actually... I sought out the spoiler before I even talked to you about it. Okay. It just didn't do anything for me, personally. I laughed so hard. I thought it was so funny because I kept making, like, ludicrous song jokes. Like, to my friend in the theater, I was like, you can't say how low can you go if you're in space. I was trying to have a good time, and he's just like, can you not? Yeah, see, the thing is, he's probably seen the other eight, so he's not not here for the jokes. 
he's not here for the pop culture zips and zaps. He's here to stay in in the universe. Plot twist. That's all I'm here for. <laughs> Understood. Understood. Because the movie was so far fetched to me, with the amount of ridiculous stunts that are pulled, I was like, oh, I can't take this movie seriously. You could you could take the genre seriously, but just not that particular film. Right. Or, I mean, I meant like the franchise, I guess, if I see other fast movies. Yeah, other other films do it better. I'll, ju- I'll just say that. With Die Hard, Bruce Willis has nine lives. The other people die off pretty quickly that are in the henchman land. There's not a big squad of people that are helping out Brucey. Right, it's, it's just him. And a guy on, you know, a guy on a, a, a walkie-talkie. And Urkel. No, not in your mind, Urkel, yes. <laughs> it's, an, it's an interesting compare and contrast where you have a film that might have a $200 million budget, like Fast 9, and you've got this one has like a 20 or less, yeah, 20, 25 to 35, and you can see the difference. Die Hard is slim and trim. It's like a slim cut suit. Not a lot of wasted fabric. The hems, you've got, you know, lapels, you've got your sleeves, you've got your cuffs, you know, you've got your zippers, you're good. That, and you've got yourself a full outfit. Fast 9 is everything I mentioned, plus a hat, dust ruffle, shoes, shoe polish, eyebrow wax, earrings. But that's a sign of the changing genre, no? In a sense, but you can just sort of see the, the, the excess. You can see the excess of the film. When you're globetrotting something like that, where you're going to different countries and, and continents. With Fast 9, people just have guns. I know a guy who can get you XYZ. And then you just have a handful of automatic weapons. They just pop up. They're free. You just pick them up at your next location. Like, you're not going to get supercars like Vin Diesel's car from one point to another that quickly. Within the world of the film, if that's the way that they tell you things happen, that's how they're supposed to happen. If, if guns can just be at your next location, so be it. There's nothing wrong with that. But it has to be explained in such a way that it, it makes sense for the film itself. When you, have a, when you have a film with a tight budget like Die Hard, there's only so much you can really do. But I don't. I mean, I think that budget was high for the time, no? Mm, no. They, they spent more money on other films. I feel like the explosions and things like that would cost money to set that up. Yeah, that's probably where most of the money went. Yeah, getting those explosions for what, both floors? Because it was the one on the roof and it was the one that popped on in the middle of the film where he drops down the elevator shaft. You know, they, of course, there's, there's always going to be a a certain amount of damage to cars, like cars are going to blow up, cars are going to get crashed. Even even your boy Argyle threw caution to the wind with his um, his limo. And uh, Carl did some work. He had to get out of there. Like he was not going to live if he did not move. I loved how he was just like, fuck this, I'm out. Pretty much. I wish he just left the scene, though, and just like didn't stay involved anymore, because I feel like I'd be like, I'm done. There's no nothing worth this. But he, you knew he was a good cop once he did that. I mean, you couldn't give him a role... He was too charismatic. You knew you were going to like like this guy. I think from the beginning in the bodega, or like when he was talking to the the cashier, and the cashier was like, oh, you're pregnant, sure. That's good That's good dialogue. That's good banter. Yeah, I think, but you were just like, oh, I like this guy. I want to see more of this guy. So I knew that he yeah. wasn't going to be a goner and a one-off. Yeah, too bad he didn't make it into the sequels. Oh, no? That's sad. Spoiler, unfortunately. Oh, I know that, like, Brucey is supposed to be... You, you do root for him, right? But I don't find him likable, necessarily. I loved these, like, side characters more than I had a love and a root for McLean. But I was kind of like, oh, he's kind of an ass. There's going to be some, stuff like that with tropes 
in films. To to your point, you're right because he he seemed like an ass getting off the plane, especially with you knowing that he was coming to see his wife, but he's still looking at other women. He's kind of got like this New York, I don't give a you know, I don't give a rat's ass about anything type of vibe. You're supposed to see that, I guess. But then the point where he then becomes that caring individual for other people. That's sort of when you're supposed to change with him. Right, yeah, there's that shift. Yeah, like when he's in the building and, you know, Hans is shooting rockets at the uh, the military vehicle trying to make it up the stairs. You know, he makes that call down like, oh, you've done enough, Hans. You made your points. You know, you let him let him back up. You know, you you see him caring about other people getting hurt. So that sort of switches in, in my head from him being that, that jerk that you hate. Or not even hate, but just uh, uh, he's just a jerk in general. It turns him into something that's a little, you know, more redeemable than just the jerk that he he was. And you know, like he had that scene where he's, you know, he's on the radio talking to Carl Winslow, saying, uh, "Tell my wife I love her." That's that's where his redemption comes from through the arc of the film. Right, you have to have it at some point because you have to have the audience root for him. Right. I mean, yeah, he was more likable, and obviously the sappy moment when he's talking to Carl on the walkie. But there was also very identified throughout the whole thing, very good versus very evil. But, and he also, had, as we just talked about, he has a character arc. Right. You know, he starts off as one place and he gets at the other uh, to counter with Fast 9. As you do. I, granted, that's just part of an entire series, so Vin doesn't need to have as much. But there was no character development, per se. Only person who had any was John Cena's character. He just went one direction, and then he flipped the other side, and that was it. My favorite is that I just thought that John Cena was in Die Hard. No. <laughs> I had to, like, switch for a second. I was like, where was John Cena? <laughs> he, he was one of the 30 captives. A, a young Jonathan Cena. <laughs> Before the wrestlership. Yeah, he, was, he, he did Greco-Roman back then, not the real wrestling entertainment that he does now. He's trying to do sumo wrestling? That would be terrible. <laughs> that would also be terrible. What a dream. Now I want to see that. Now I want to see a movie where he sumo wrestles someone to the death. Give him a chance. He, there's probably some comedy with him coming out in the sumo suit. What a man. What a man. What a Cena. Yikes. Do you Cena what The Rock is cooking? Actually, it's... Oh, man. Well, technically, Cena replaced The Rock from 8 to 9, but that's another conversation. Uh, so, in summation, I think it's time to give Die Hard a rating. This, this will be a, a common theme through all of the classes that we have but we're going to give it a rating from one to five with a particular theme from the film. For me, with Die Hard, I would say I would give Die Hard four and a half C4 explosions in terms of rating rating the film from one to five. What would you give Die Hard in terms of C4 explosions? Oh, I was going to rate it as a four out of five yippee-ki-yays. Yeah, I think that would have been the... That's the easy choice. Mm. It, it, it's it's basically the same thing. The, your your Yippie-Ki-Yays versus my C4 basically means a star or uh, a positive ranking anyway, so... For a four out of five Stevie songs. I thought you were going to say four out of five Argyles. I had to do my Argyle adjacent because I was going to be too predictable if I mentioned all the Argyles. If Argyle is what you really connected with, Argyle is what you really connected with. What a man. What a driver. Yikes. So yes, I would give it four and a half... I can't give it a perfect five out of five because they, you know, they were they were things. You know, there were small little exposition dumps that bothered me. Uh, there were little there were little things that got me, but that little bit of nitpicks, just taking off half half a C four is fine. It's still it's still a very good film, uh, one that I would recommend to others to watch. It actually makes sense to start your 
action education class with a film like this because you see you see a finely tuned action film you see how sharp and tight it is with with even a little bit of cinematography flair the score wasn't overbearing it told you when things were going to happen but it wasn't like you know turned up to 30 this is like the basic template of a very good action film we're only going to go in wildly different directions from here can't wait I'm here for more eerie scores when trucks come by. Yes. You're, you're, oh, you're going to hear some scores, all right. You're going to hear some things. You're going to see some things. All I've ever wanted was to see some things. <laughs> um, yes. So I, had, I have to now pick your next film. Oh, boy. I'm looking at the list. Yeah, I'm looking at the syllabus now. There's so many choices. Do we go with industry standard or do we go with one of my choices? I think it would be interesting to go to your choices because then people can... If you can, if you disagree with Christopher's choices, it'll be something to interact with us with. Okay, fair. Now, in my choices, you know what? Because I haven't seen it in a while, I think I should go with a film with a female lead. Nice. You know, switch things up a little bit. The next film that we will watch is a film called Hannah. Okay, I've never heard of this, I don't think. So, Hannah is, is it a 2011 film? Yes. It is. Uh, starring Sarah C. Ronan as the title character. Kate Blanchett is in it. Soundtrack was done by the Chemical Brothers. Eric Bana is in it, a.k.a. the Hulk, or one of the Hulks. Yeah, we'll switch to Hannah. Okay, we're going to jump some decades and have some Kate. Yeah, we need Kate in our lives. And a Sarah. That's so- I love a Sarah lead. Say it again? Isn't the lead name Sarah? Sarah so. It's a, I can't pronounce I can spell it. It's S-A-O- I-R-S-E. Oh. Oh, Sersha. Sersha Ronan. Yes. That's Sersha? Yeah. Oh, well, let me remember. Sersha Ronan. This film has a $30 million budget. Another small budget film. And probably and that's small budget for 2011, I think. Exactly. Exactly. Great. Well, I'm, re- I'm ready. So I would like everyone to come back and listen to episode two after we've seen Hannah. And uh, we'll have some more enlightening discussion regarding the action genre. Some tropes, some more tropes will probably get shown um, and talked about. We'll have our star rating system. Um, we'll have our pros and cons, what we like and dislikes. We'll talk about. So come on back for episode two. Is class dismissed? Uh, yes, class is dismissed. You can go to the lectures. Uh, so you can go to the library and uh, go pick up the DVD. Talk to Mrs. Gildenstern about, uh, you know, borrowing the DVD. We'll come back in, uh, in a little bit in the future. Thank you, Professor. You're welcome. See you next class. You've been listening to the Fundamentals of Action Film 101 podcast, hosted by Christopher Carter and Sarah Crowley. Music composed by Michael Herron. Thank you for listening. <laughs>